Hey, fellow traveler, welcome to Third Eye Awakening. This is a podcast all about spiritual and psychic awakening where we talk about things like the shift from 3D to 5D consciousness, the nature of time, space, the universe, the multiverse, multidimensionality, starseeds, the Akashic Records, all the things. I'm so glad that you're here with me today. I appreciate you so very much. All right, let's get into it. Hey, beautiful beings. Welcome back for another episode of Third Eye Awakening. I am your host, Amy Belair. Before we get started, if you want to create me on Instagram, you can check me out at thenorthstar.love. And if you like what we're talking about here on the podcast and you'd like to be part of an interactive community, then come join my free private Facebook group called Soul Space. Just send me a request and I'll add you. I would love to have you there. Okay, my friends, I am so excited to announce that I am offering a new kind of reading inspired by several recent readings that I've done and my um, growing enthusiasm around the topic of starseeds. So the reading that I am providing now that I'm just adding to my list of services is a multidimensional starseed reading. And it's Basically, uh, it's like a co-reading between between you and I, where we sort of untangle and explore the the insights that are coming through, where I provide more validation. I mean, this is what a reading is. is more It's like validation, right? That's what it always is. And maybe a few extra pieces of the puzzle. But... In this kind of reading, it's like validation of what information you are already receiving and extra pieces of the puzzle to understand some of the um, cosmic, more cosmic energies that are coming through. So it's really designed for... I'm I'm saying it's designed. It hasn't even been designed. It's already designed. It's designed itself. And I've found myself doing it for the past few readings. Um, So it has designed itself to be a reading that allows you to more fully acknowledge, accept, and integrate your starseed identity and merge it with your incredible, powerful human identity and figure out how they weave together and how those energies want to be expressed through you in this life at this time. Mm -hmm. I'm so excited about it. So because it's a new reading and I'm so excited about it and I'm excited that Mercury Retrograde is over and I'm excited that it's almost spring, I've decided that I'm going to give the first 100 readings at a rate of 77 US dollars. And after after those 100 spots have been booked, then I will raise the rate. I'm not exactly sure to what yet. My feeling is probably the next level will be $111. It'll be a 45 minute reading. But, you know, sometimes if there's more, I'm not I'm never going to cut somebody off. Basically, like if there's really more that urgently has to come through and I have the time to allow it without it um, cutting into somebody else's reading or another interview I have booked, then I will complete the reading. I always want to make sure that we both feel complete. Um, P.S. I feel like that's such a weird and creepy way of describing it. I don't know. I feel complete. Anyway, I want us to both feel like the energy has wrapped itself up and there are no loose threads dangling around in the ethers. Um, But it'll be sort of like structured and and, um, sold as a 45 minute reading for 77 US dollars. And it is so like I have loved doing them, even though I didn't even set out to do them. 
They just started coming through. It's been so much fun. So if you feel like you want to, if, if this speaks to you and you're like, oh my gosh, I want to do that, then book in while they're $77 because why not? And yeah, and if that is really like too big of a stretch for you even, I mean, I feel you. I've been tight for cash for on and off many years of my life. So we can figure out a payment plan or something like that. But anyway, I think $77 is a a good affordable rate and I'm really excited about it and it's a pretty high level reading. So you are officially the first to know. Okay, on to the episode. Okay, so just in case you haven't listened to the rest of the episodes about Killian, I'll give a little summary. So Killian is my second born. I got pregnant with him 11 years after I had my first child and he was so incredibly wanted. He took me by surprise and he came in much faster. We weren't really planning on having a child um, when I got pregnant with him, but I was so excited to be pregnant with him nonetheless. So excited. And when I was 20 weeks pregnant, my water broke um, after a series of, of events that caused it. And that put a very poor prognosis on the pregnancy Um, because, you know, it's only halfway through. Uh, A pregnancy is, on average, 40 weeks long. And um, so he was, like, just half-cooked. He was just teeny, teeny, tiny. The prognosis I was given was really poor. Most likely, I would have a stillbirth within about 24 to 48 hours of my water breaking. Um, And I was given the option to just, like, sort of accept that and move forward with the termination so that uh, we wouldn't have to wait for it to happen on its own um, or to just wait and see what would happen. And I chose to wait and see. Uh, His heart was still beating and um, it just felt like the right choice for me at the time. And I miraculously stayed pregnant with him for another six weeks before I gave birth to him um, at 26 completed weeks of gestation. He weighed 880 grams when he was born, so that's just just like point something of an ounce shorter than uh, a short of two pounds. He was absolutely perfect and beautiful and so powerful and strong and um, he was in one of the top hospitals of my province Ontario in Canada under the best care and for the first 10 days of his life he was doing really well um, much better than anyone expected and we were, when, when the staff spoke to us, when the nurses and um, doctors spoke to us about him, they would really speak to us in a way that conveyed optimism that, you know, this was going to be a long stay in the special care nursery or the sort of, sorry, the neonatal intensive care unit, um, probably at least 13 weeks uh, because he should have been inside of me for probably about 13 more weeks before being born. So he was going to need really specialized care for that long. Um, And just to, you know, to know that it would be full of ups and downs, but that's just the nature of this journey. And so I truly believed that after his harrowing journey, he was going to be sticking around and that you know in 13 weeks time roughly give or take a little bit probably give a little bit um we would we would be taking our beautiful incredibly strong son home with us 
And when he was 11 days old, something was just different about him. I could tell that he wasn't, there was some, it wasn't right. There was something that wasn't right. He just looked a little bit different. And I mentioned it to the nurse and she, she had never been with us before. She hadn't been assigned to us. So she, she did say she didn't have any context for it, but she, she kind of agreed and, um, you know, they weren't going to take any chances. So she, she told one of the pediatric residents and that pediatrician came to have a look and agreed that, um, some tests should be done, some x-rays and stuff. And they asked me to go and have dinner and then to come back in about an hour so that they had time and space to do those tests. So I went and did that. And, um, when I came back up to the floor and came back in, there was an absolute flurry of activity around him. There were tons of people and I, you know, I know they were respiratory therapists and nurses and, but, and, and pediatric residents and pediatricians and, but they hadn't been there before. Like there was just, there was clearly something really, really wrong. And one of the pediatric residents saw me and, and took me aside and explained to me that when they did the abdominal x-ray, they found that there was a hole in his intestine um, because he had developed neck, which is short for necrotizing enterocolitis. Um, and that he was, they were preparing to transport him over to an adjacent hospital, like right, right across the road. There's an underground tunnel for easy transport um, f- that specializes in the care of very, very sick kids. Um, they were preparing to transport him and he was going to need an emergency um, bowel surgery. And she told me that and I, I knew, I knew what it meant. Like, you know, they really didn't know that I had the background and the training that I did. Um, so I remember just being like in complete shock because it's not like neck is one of the biggest killers of preterm babies, but it's, and it's a, it happens much more frequently to preterm babies than full-term babies, much, 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 much more frequently. But not all preterm babies get neck. And I just remember being like, my baby, my baby? I'm just in shock with big, big tears rolling down my cheeks. And she asked me if I understood what she was saying. And I said, yes, I did. I understood that he was probably going to die. So they asked me to quickly collect the, you know, my belongings that I had left in our room. Our little, it's, it wasn't really a room. It was just like every baby had an individual, like little, I don't know, little chamber kind of. Because I realized we weren't going to be coming back. Our time here was done. This, this was big and it was over. And so I, I collected all of our things and I was crying and, and, you know, he was being reintubated, and there was such a flurry of activity. And one of the nurses, just before they took him away, just as they were moving him from his, his um, incubator into the transport incubator, she said, do you want to give him a kiss? And I, I, you know, I had like 0.2 seconds to just give him a little kiss on the forehead. And it was just so surreal because I didn't know. I didn't know if he was going to die on the way over. I didn't know if he was, I just didn't know anything. And of course I had to call Alex. I think I had called him while I was sitting downstairs while they were doing the test, but it's hard to remember anymore. It was such an exhausting and emotionally intense period in my life. <clears throat> anyway, um, they 
he survived the transport over and they had to go in and do an emergency surgery to close that hole, to take out the part. Basically, basically necrotizing enterocolitis is rotting tissue in the um, intestine because <clears throat> such a preterm baby doesn't have uh, the circulation that's meant to survive on breathing air through their lungs. They're still supposed to be getting all of their oxygen through the umbilical cord. Um, and so they don't have, it's harder for them to oxygenate their bodies um, as efficiently as a, a baby who's born full term. And one of the areas that gets oxygen deprived easily is the intestinal tract. And if it's oxygen deprived, then of course, like for a sustained period, then of course the cells start to die. And as the cells die, they trigger more cells around them to die. And eventually a hole rots through the, the side of the intestine. And what made this a really critical situation is that, you know, being 10 days old, by then he had bacteria colonizing his gut just as we do. And now that had all leaked into his bloodstream. He, he looked waxy and yellow, like very, very sick, just as they were taking him to transport him. Uh, <clears throat> so when we got there, they said they were going to have to do an emergency surgery and they couldn't guarantee anything. They didn't know how bad it was and they wouldn't know until they got in and it would be possible that once they got in, his bowel be, would be in such bad shape that there was nothing that they could do and he might die during the surgery or they might just close him up and he would die shortly after. And it just, it's like my, everything just changed overnight. It just, not even overnight, like in an instant, like in the blink of an eye, suddenly he wasn't coming home with us and it wasn't going to be weeks and weeks in the... NICU, it was, will I even see my baby ever again? And we were given the chance to say goodbye to him as he went into the surgery. And then he was gone. And it was just this suspended agony of hours and hours of not knowing, not knowing, not knowing. And he did end up coding twice during the the surgery, and I remember hearing the code announced over the um, PA speaker at the hospital, and I didn't know if it was him, and I told myself it wasn't, but of course it was. It was overnight, and so it was it was like just hours of not knowing and not having any answers and nobody coming to talk to us. It was very, very challenging, but he did survive the surgery and I, I, there aren't words. I mean, it's, it's, as I tell this story, I've been waiting so long to tell this story, to tell his story because I love him so much and I just want to remember him on the out, like outwardly, I guess. Now that I'm here telling it, I realize how much of it is impossible to put into words. But the feeling of hearing that he had lived through the surgery was, it was like elation doesn't even do it. I was going to see him again. I was going to see him again. And the surgeon who came to tell us kept reiterating that like this, this was not like he had lived through, but um, there was a long way to go and that he was a very sick little boy. That's how she put it. And that really, I don't know, that still frustrates me to even hear that. I don't know why. I guess because from my perspective, he's a powerful being. He's not a little boy. He was a powerful, powerful being. And also we're not stupid and like, I get it. I guess, but you know, sometimes people don't. And when you're in that state, like you're in so much shock that sometimes you really just do need people to put it to you in that kind of way. And she was just trying to be as gentle as possible.
but as clear as possible. And we finally got to go see him and I was absolutely shocked. Like I couldn't even, he was almost unrecognizable. He was so edematous, meaning that he was, his whole body was waterlogged. His, because of the infection, he had his terrible sepsis because of the bacteria that had been in his intestines that leaked into his bloodstream, even though they found that actually there was only one hole and it was actually really small and they were able to um, remove it and resect his bowel. And it was actually, that was not the hard part. It was that he had this rampant infection circulating through his whole body, affecting every part of his body because it was in his blood. And one of the the ways that his body was responding to it was for his blood vessels to um, become leaky and leak out all the plasma. And the the plasma leaks out into the tissues and the tissues become um, swollen and, and full of fluid it's called edema. Um, you can look it up if you want to see what I'm talking about. But every part of his body was swollen. And he went from looking like a tiny little perfect two-pound like doll to like having this tiny, tiny little body and tiny head to looking like he had, you know, put on like three or four pounds, like and his tiny little nose, it just looks so small in his big waterlogged head. He just didn't look the same. And that was really hard, really, really hard. But of course, like, that just means fucking nothing. Like, I love him so much. It didn't matter. It was just shocking. And he was on painkillers, and it made him feel very distant. Um, like, like when he, before, before he developed the neck and he was in the first hospital, he felt very clear. He wasn't on very much medica- medication. He was just getting, um, his feeding through like all of his nutritional needs met through I, an IV line with something called TPN, total parenteral nutrition. And he was on caffeine to stimulate his heart and his breathing. He wasn't on any other medications because he was doing so well. And now he was on a lot of medications. He was on medications to help um, stabilize his blood pressure. He was on medications to help him um, process and pee out all that extra fluid and like basically to affect his kidneys. He was on like a lot of pain medication and antibiotics. The bacteria that was causing the infection was something called Klebsiella and it's a gram negative bacteria, which means that it's really, I mean, any septic infection is a virulent, serious infection, but gram negative is hard, stubborn, strong, hard to eradicate. So he was on, he was on antibiotics as well. And for three days after the surgery, it was just like this suspended state of like, will he live or won't he, um, where he needed all this medication to keep him, keep him alive. And yet he was still in there I would still come in and sing to him and hold his hand and take pictures to him and talk to him. And I was still pumping breast milk because he might live. Like I had to keep going. It was so important. And one of the things that they encouraged was he couldn't eat anything like his system. He couldn't handle any like digesting anything, but you, I could take a cotton, a sterile cotton swab and dip it in some of my breast milk and then put it in his mouth and his cheek pockets and he would absorb through the mucosa lining of his mouth um, a lot of the immune cells and the nutrition. And it was so amazing because he was so preterm and so 
he was, he, you know, he was in, under a fog of medication. I can't even imagine the pain he was in. But when I would put that swab in his mouth, he would reach up and grab it. And I have pictures of him holding it. I have pictures of him holding it when he was at the first hospital before he got sick. And I have pictures of him holding it after while he was in that suspended state. And he was there. He was there. It gave me so much joy to be able to give him that. It just, it was, that was my biggest gift for him was to be able to produce the perfect food for him and to be able to give him even some of it was, I'm, I feel so lucky that I got to do that. Anyway, on the third day of his life, oh, and he had also been in a sustained for three days state of acidosis, which I knew was, um, that would have lasting implications on his brain function. But on the third day, he finally stabilized. And his his blood pressure stabilized on its own. They were able to take him off of the blood pressure medication. His heart rate stabilized. <clears throat> and I remember when like the whole team that was looking after all the babies would do something called rounds where they would every morning they would go through every individual case together and review all the changes in the last 24 hours and every member of the team would contribute their part of what they were doing and I was present for rounds on day three I think I was probably present for rounds on all of those days but I remember on day three when he stabilized and the wonderful angel of of a doctor that we had Dr. White, she was incredible. She said to me, I think that now we can be cautiously optimistic, but with a little bit more optimism than caution. And I've never heard words more beautiful in my life. It was just the greatest thing in the world to hear. And I felt like, oh my God, we're going to be okay. And I've, I guess I felt like I could finally sleep. Like I hadn't really slept at all. And I could finally sleep. And so... After rounds, I walked back over. Alex was out somewhere. He had to, I did rounds by myself that day, I think. And Alex had to go somewhere. Maybe we did rounds together. And then and then he went maybe to the mall because he had forgotten all of his clothes and his underwear. So he had to buy something new. I think that's what it was. And I went back to the Ronald McDonald house and I was just going to sleep. I was going to finally sleep. And I had a shower first, and I had just crawled into bed, and then my phone rang. And I answered it, and it was the pediatric resident that was working with our our doctor. And she was amazing, too. Her name was Sarah. She was amazing. And she said that they had something they needed to talk to us about and could we please come back and I asked her what it was and she said we just need you to come here and I knew like she just couldn't tell me over the phone and I knew when she couldn't tell me over the phone that it was bad news it was the kind of news that you can't give over the phone so I didn't even get that sleep um Alex had just walked in and I said, we're going to have to go back. And we, we walked over and for the billionth time, I thought my baby's going to die. 
But every other time I had thought it, I had been wrong. So there was still a part of me that was like, maybe not, though. And we walked up to the floor and they took us into a room. And they explained to us that he had just had a a cranial ultrasound done on his head. Just a routine one. They had done one before, like a, like maybe two days prior, and they wanted to do, like it was just a routine one to do another, just because preterm babies are also really um, predisposed to having brain bleeds because the blood vessels in their brains are so delicate and tiny. So they had done a cranial ultrasound while I was having a shower, and what they found was a massive bleed that was occurring in real time. Like it wasn't a bleed that happened a while ago. It was like happening now in his cerebellum. So if you know about the brain, you know the cerebellum makes up part of the brainstem and it affects every part of the motor function and motor regulation. It's like the ability to control urine and control defecation and the heartbeat and breathing and it's everything and they said that there is nothing there's nothing that could be done for it and it must have been that once his blood pressure finally stabilized and it was able to like his heart pumping was able to like reach the ends of all of his little blood vessels it must have just blown right through the little delicate vessels in his brain and this was so shocking because he hadn't had a single brain bleed up until then I just feel like there was so much working for him and yet these things kept happening and I knew what that was going to mean. And the wonderful nurse, like I cannot speak highly enough of all the people that were with us at that hospital. The wonderful nurse, Chrissy, she knew that I knew what it meant because we had talked about his state of um, being in a state of acidosis. And, you know, they, they basically just said like the, we're going to have to we're going to have to let him go like we can't fix it and i just started sobbing so loud i'm sure the whole fucking floor heard me the wailing with a heartbreak that I didn't even know I could experience. And they all stepped out and gave us some time and all I remember was Alex holding me and telling me that we could have another one, which I needed to hear that in that moment. I just couldn't fathom that this was, this was it, like, that I would never, that this was the end of my motherhood journey. And they gave us three days to be with him and say goodbye and let our family come to say goodbye. And then we had to let him go. I could have insisted, 
and I thought about it. Oh my God, I thought about it. You have no idea. I, as, as those hours passed and I knew that on July 19th, we would have to let him go. I imagined like his, his breathing was getting better. They were able to extubate him again. And I just kept thinking like, maybe he's stronger than anyone realizes. And maybe he'll just keep breathing. Like when we remove the, the respiratory support, cause that's really the part that was keeping him alive. Maybe he'll just keep breathing and he'll just keep living. But that was just me not being able to accept what I was facing. And I thought, you know, they couldn't make us like they, it was still our choice. And if we had insisted that he, that we keep him alive, they would have had to honor that. But it was their medical professional advice that that was not, that would have actually been um, like a cruelty to him because what is all of this fight for if he never has a working body? And like, you know, the the best forecast they could give us was like he won't be ever be independent on any level. And he will be affected in every way. Like, And I remember being in the hospital lobby one time after getting that news and seeing somebody wheeling their son in who looked to be maybe about nine years old, roughly, and he couldn't even sit in a wheelchair. He was on like a board, like he looked like he was on a a gurney kind of, but like um he was like sort of being wheeled like like a dolly, like you know you use those dollies to move furniture. That's kind of what it looked like. And that boy obviously had no like his body didn't work the way it was designed to work at all. And when I saw that, I realized that I, can't, I, couldn't, I couldn't ask him to stay for that. Like all of the reasons that I wanted to keep him were for me so that I wouldn't have to feel losing him so that I could hold him again. so that I could have him. <clears throat> and I don't think those are bad reasons. I don't feel ashamed of those reasons, but I was able to understand that he would be the one paying the biggest price for that and that the most loving thing that I could do for him would be to release him back into spirit so that he could have another another chance to incarnate somewhere, sometime of his choosing. <clears throat> and so th the day came. Oh, and the crazy thing is that at that hospital, there's only one parent room. All the rooms that the babies were in were ward rooms, meaning that it was just an open room and all the babies were in the room. So when you're in there crying with your baby who's going to die, other babies and their parents are like right there and there's no curtain or anything even to create even a, an illusion of privacy. It's just very open. And there was only one parent room. So if your baby is 
going to die or if your baby's in critical condition or whatever, they they put you in the parent room so that you're on site, so that if your baby's dying, you're literally just down the hall and around a corner and you can come and hopefully catch your baby before they die or be there, right? Like, so, you, you know, so you just don't have that extra agony of being at a distance away, which is wonderful. But they only had one parent room and somebody else was in it the night before he was going to die. And so the best they could do was to let us sleep in the pump room where um, they had electric breast pumps and like a private pumping station. So Alex and I spent the night in there and uh, it was just such a hard night because I knew what the morning brought with it. It was just such a surreal feeling to have the minutes pass by and the hours pass by and you just have no control over it and it's every passing minute is bringing you closer and closer to this thing that you just don't want to you just don't want you don't want it at all so the next morning the, they had asked that other couple to vacate the parent room and so that we were able to be in there in private with Killian as he as he died. And we went in with him and they had this group of volunteer photographers who would come and take pictures of your last moments with your baby. Um so that you would always have those memories, which is amazing. And so we had a photographer come and he took pictures and video of us. And uh, Alex and I still haven't looked at any of those. And we don't know if we ever will be able to, but we have it and just having it is a huge comfort. And so after the pictures were taken, the time had come to remove his life support, his respiratory support. And we got onto bed with him, into bed with him. And we surrounded him with, oh, I forgot to mention that in preparation for his death, Alex fasted. He just felt like that's what was right and needed. And I, um, on the other hand, I needed to eat. I needed to ground myself as much as possible. That's what felt right to me. And there was this little crystal store, little metaphysical store, but mostly just sold crystal and like, you know, a couple magic objects. And we had been in there before, but we went in um, intentionally in the couple days leading up to his death and we each bought some crystals and it was really Alex's idea and like this is one of the biggest gifts he's ever given me was to to go in and buy these crystals and buy some sage and then we we went to a little spot. There's a little bit of garden around the Ronald McDonald house. And we went and he lit the sage and we cleaned all the crystals and we set them together on the earth and in the sun. And I took some pictures of them and it was all Alex's idea. I just didn't have the lucidity to do that. And I was still too much in my left brain. I was still detached from that magical, spiritual part of myself in a lot of ways. And so when it was time to remove the respiratory support, we put him on the bed. My mom had bought a special blanket for him, and we wrapped him in that blanket. And we put all of the crystals around him, and two of the crystals I had bought I didn't realize they were man-made crystals, but they were beautiful, were these two little pieces of opalite. And I put, Alex put one in each of his hands, each of Killian's little tiny, tiny hands. And we created, we got into the bed with him, so he was in between us. 
in a special blanket surrounded by crystals with a piece of opalite wrapped in each of his hands. And I sang him out of this life. And it was so hard to watch my baby die in front of my eyes. But I didn't take my eyes off him, not once. And I know Alex didn't either. It's like, it just felt like I just needed to be there with him through it, no matter how hard it was for me. And of course, he didn't keep breathing. It was clear once the respiratory support was removed how how overwhelmed his body was by this whole entire journey. And they had warned us that sometimes it takes you know, 15 minutes for a baby to die and sometimes it takes hours. But that periodically the doctor would come in and listen for his heart rate with the stethoscope and when there's no heart rate, that would be declared the time of death. And so we sat with him in a sunbeam on a little bed in this weird little room in the hospital and sang him, I sang him out of this life. And then afterward, we were allowed to bathe his body and put cold cream on him to help retain the moisture and dress him again and put him back in the isolate and then we basically had to just leave and it was such a weird experience to like we we did all that we bathed him and you know nobody hurried us they were really lovely but we we bathed him and put the cream on and got him dressed and just loved his little body and put him back in the isolate and they took they covered it with the blanket and then they took it and put it back where he had been when he was alive and we just had to walk out of the hospital without our son and pass that room again that was the only way out was to pass that room and it was just so weird to be like but he's in there and I remember the first time I went back to to Toronto after he died and went by that hospital and I was like he's in there I gotta go get him he's in there it was like a strange schism in my mind but of course he was gone and uh after after he died and after we left, left the hospital, we just walked for a while. And Alex hadn't eaten in about 24 hours, so we decided to go get some food. <clears throat> and as I was, as I was walking with Alex... It was like maybe, I don't know, an hour or two after Killian had died, maybe. As we were walking to get food, I all of a sudden felt the feeling of like a thousand helium balloons floating higher and higher. And it was Killian. And he was telling me, thank you, and that he feels free. And... It just put a smile on my face. Like it was such a strange thing to be, to be smiling right after my son died. But it felt like, I don't know, he just let me know how he felt and it felt so good. It felt so light and free. And that really helped to ease my pain for a little while, at least for that day. And then later, um, that same day, as I was getting into the shower, he came through to me again and let me know that he wasn't done with our family 
And I really didn't know what that meant. That's just what he said. And that was a huge relief too. It was like, oh, you're still here. Like I can still, you're still here. <laughs> it's not the same, but you're still here. Anyway, that's the end of Killian's story and the story of his life and his death. In the next episode, I'll share basically the incredible spiritual awakening that came um, to me in the wake of his death and how it completely changed my life. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for listening to this story and being with me even as I get very vulnerable and emotional. It just really means a lot. Good morning, my child. Stay with me a while. You've not got any place to be. Won't you sit a spell with me? You've got diamonds for eyes. It's time for you to rise and evaporate in the sun. Sometimes it can weigh a ton. Keep all your crows away. Hold skinny wolves at bay in silver pots of smiles may all your days be gold my child may all your days be gold my child may all your days be gold my child Thank you so much for being here with me through this episode. You are beautiful, magical, and powerful. You are so appreciated. Please don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And I hope to catch you on the next episode.